gonna rock this shade Gonna scream my name Make you shout now, honey Gonna make you Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here's an indie blues double shot from our featured artist today, Jennifer Lynn and the Groove Revival. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. Broken, but what I have to give, you can take it. 
and religion Could have kept my man Could have made some dollars and made Faces, been a lot of places. My feet keep running, you can't hold me down. Had a lot of lovers, even met a few mothers, but I always keep on moving to the next town. Oh, my one true love is a rock and roll. Oh, Lord, oh, please help me. I got a gypsy soul. Jennifer Lynn and the Groove Revival, and we got Jennifer Lynn and Richard Torrance on the line right now. Hey, guys, how you doing? Great. Doing great. Now, um, you it's been a while since you guys have been on the show, and we always start things off by giving our fans the, an opportunity to get to know who you are as an artist, but also as people. And the best way to do that is to look at your journey how you got to where you are today. So give us the story of Jennifer Lynn and the Soul Revival, and of course of you, Jennifer, and you, Richard, your stories as well. Sure. Well, um, I'll start. I've been at this now for a little over 10 years and formed uh, Jennifer Lynn and the Groove Revival uh, not too long ago, a couple years ago, maybe, maybe five years in. And um, I started as a trio, and then um, the band has mutated over time for the better, and we're now a five-piece band, so two two guitars. So we've got uh, dual lead guitars, um, which is really fun, and we added keyboards. So now we're a five-piece band, and it's it's a blast. Okay. How about you, Rich? How was your story? Well, <laughs> I'm a little bit older <laughs> than Jen by... Uh, a few years. Anyway, <laughs> I had a record deal back in the 70s, actually, two record deals back in the 70s. Uh, the first one was with Shelter Records, uh, Leon Russell's label, and the second one was Capitol Records. We all know Capitol Records. Oh, yeah. And uh, through that 
10 year span in the 70s i recorded seven albums for them and uh i moved um all over the country pretty much throughout the west coast mainly and to uh las vegas i spent 14 very long years <laughs> in las vegas learning what that city was all about and then i moved back to uh, my hometown of Bismarck, north dakota uh in 2004 and um it wasn't too long after that that uh, Jen and my paths crossed, and uh, she was interested in learning about what I had learned in my musical career, as well as um, you know the music that I had um, taken in in all that time. So I, she became my student, and I started teaching her. And then all of a sudden, she asked me if I wanted to play in the band <laughs> with her. <laughs> I'm like, well, that was bad. <laughs> Diabolical plot. <laughs> yes. But it worked out really well. And, and I, I was still uh, kind of going um, hither and yaw. And I tried out a year in um, Austin, Texas to see if I wanted to maybe relocate down there because it's so hot down there and everybody's really uh, very musically oriented. But uh, after a year, I still wasn't happy with what was going on down there and moved right back to North Dakota and been here ever since playing in Jennifer's van. Pretty much on, but sometimes off. Yep, now on. Okay. Now, now very know, intensely on, yes. Okay. Now, you know, I always found that, you know, most musicians have that pivotal moment in their lives where they had to make that choice between music and alternate careers. Um, you know, that crossroad moment. What was that crossroad moment for you guys? What was that moment in each of your lives that you knew music was a path that you wanted to pursue? It's a great question. Um, well, for me, I'm still multitasking. I'm actually uh, a college professor as well as doing music. Um, I think Richard's probably the best one to answer this one because he actually did just that. He threw all the eggs in the basket and <laughs> pursued that path. My defining moment was um, about six months after getting out of high school because I was still trying to hang on to the high school band that I had been with. We had had great success uh, regionally, going all the way up into Canada, playing in Winnipeg and uh, recording and actually getting our songs on the radio and the, the regional top 40 and stuff. It was very exciting. But most of the members of the band ultimately decided, yeah, I think I want to be a doctor, or yeah, I'm going to go into computer technology, or I was the only one out of a seven-piece band that said, I'm going out to California. I'm going to be a <laughs> rock star, you guys. No one's with me on this, huh? Yeah. So I pretty much went out with one friend who was a drummer, and uh, we headed out to see what we could do. And I, too, just like Jennifer, put together a trio, and much like Grand Funk in those days, they were my heroes, so I put on a tank top and a tight pair of jeans and strapped on a Les Paul and and that was it. I said, full speed ahead, damn torpedoes. All right. Now, let's talk about um, the new release. Um, if you were to run into someone in the street and you wanted to give them that elevated pitch, tell them about this release to get them excited about, you know, going out and, and listening to it, what would you tell them? I would definitely say it's 60s and 70s vibed, throwback music, um, fulfilling that uh, wanderlust, and um, the lyrics are, are definitely kind of story-driven. Yeah, we, we really kind of really gravitate towards that 60s and 70s sound. We love the overdriven amps and um, music that still resonates and touches the part of your soul. Okay. All right. Well, you know, that's my era. I'm I'm back in that area. I'm sure you and I, Rich, are pretty much, I, we might be close in age. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, kind of get that feeling too, Richard. Yeah. I mean, I'll be turning 69 next month. So I'm. Oh, my. Yeah. No, I'm an old son. You are an old guy. Yeah, I'm an old guy. <laughs> Guess what? I'm older. <laughs> but, you'll have but you're still doing it. That's the key. You're still out And that is, yeah. Now, um, let's talk about you guys as songwriters, because, you know, every good release starts with a song. 
Um, when you sit down to begin that process of writing, what is your, I guess your 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 method of tapping into the muse? What do you guys do? That's a good question. Well, Richard and I, we we do all of our songwriting together now. Um, it started with the last album, which was Nothing Holding Me Down, and then it's now gravitated towards this next album, which is um, the one we're discussing, Gypsy Soul. But it basically starts with he and I in a room. I uh, call him the riff master because he's got a million guitar licks and riffs going on in his head. And so he'll just kind of start noodling on the guitar. And I'm kind of more the melody person. I'll start humming a melody. And um, I kind of um, picture myself more as a lyricist. So it's a really great pairing. Richard writes lyrics, too. I mean, we've we've co-written a mm-hmm. lot of lyrics together, but definitely that's kind of the dynamic. He starts out with a guitarist, and then we're kind of off and running with a melody, and, and pretty soon we have a song together, and then we obsess over it for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, round the corners, I guess you could say, to make it a nice polished um, product, and then uh, we go from there. Okay. Now, you know, um, I've been doing some some looking at some of the new technology that's out there for songwriters. Um, one of them is all of this new AI, this artificial intelligence. Uh, yeah. You know, as a songwriter, you know, you sit down, you get a blank piece of paper, and you stare at that blank piece of paper, and you say, okay, I got to put something on this and, and get the, get everything flowing, get things started. And I mm-hmm. looked at some of these AI um, software tools, and that's how I'm looking at them as tools. And mm-hmm. I find them amazing because you can kind of take those little bits and pieces that you kind of collect over the time, throw them in there, and they will give you a plethora of, of generated ideas on what to do with that. What do you think of this technology um, do you find it that it it may hurt the songwriters as as a as a craft, or is it just another tool that we can use to kind of fill the blank page? Personally, I'm a technology nerd. That being said, I feel like technology is a double edged sword. Um, I look at I look at some of these tools like I look at Auto Tune. <laughs> Thank you. And, I was just going to say that, and and that make, probably makes me sound like a curmudgeon, but I uh, I feel like sometimes if we're not careful, and like I said, tools are tools are great, and I and I like that you called it a tool because that's kind of how I look at it too. Tools are great, but also we have to be careful. I feel as artists to not take out the human element of what it is that we're trying to do, because without that hu- human element. Um, how are you going to reach somebody? How are you going to tell a story that resonates with them? How are you going to, um, you know, create something that's an uplifting experience for them or something that's reflective and helps them through a, a challenging time? I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe artificial intelligence can do that, but I feel like it doesn't have have a soul, so I don't know how you can resonate well, to another know, soul. Yeah, and I agree. It's a tool because I'm, you know, I'm looking at some of these. Like I, I went up and, and and tried a few of them as I'm, you know, working on this article, and, um, you know, I would input these ideas, and you know, I would say seventy to eighty percent of it was crap. Um, <laughs> so it's yeah. like songwriting, for- yeah, <laughs> yeah like any songwriting. Yeah, you know, seventy to eighty percent is crap. But there were <laughs> gems that just kind of stood out to me. And, Interesting. You know, I find that, um, you know, if you, like Ed Sheeran, um, he, he did an, artic- uh, an interview where he admitted that his last release, he used AI technology to help him write. And in fact, he, <laughs> he kind of put a teaser out that one of the songs on the release was completely written through EI. AI rather, and you know he's he kind of challenging his fan base to find the song that he didn't write mm. that the AI wrote, and, and mm. you know it's it's interesting that you can you know as as songwriters we're always looking for that inspirational spark that could move us forward in our writing, and this new technology just may help us get that on you know an instantaneous in front of us just 
you know, bring it up and say, all right, tell me about this phrase. And it will give you, you know, uh, 20 verses based on that phrase, you know? And, huh. Yeah, I, that, that's really interesting. I kind of agree with you where, where if you use it as a tool, um, yeah, inspiration may, may follow. Yeah, and remember, we're so, still artists that are going to be performing this. There's still that human right. element of of the performance and the the interpretation of the song. So you know that still is intact. Sure. Now, sure. Yeah. What are some of the other tools that you guys have found that um, have become indispensable to you as songwriters? You know, whether it's cell phone or home recording studio. What are some of those tools that you that you use? Um, I definitely like. I find myself um, writing more lyrics in electronic form nowadays, just so I can have it with me. Um, because you never know when <laughs> you might tweak a verse and make it sound fabulous. And if you don't have the ability to write it down right at that moment, so I my phone has become kind of a lifeline for that. And also, it's kind of crazy when I go through the the voice memos on my phone, how many um, great lyrical lines I've written in the checkout line at the grocery store, you know, so mm-hmm. you never know where, where inspiration will strike. So for me, I would definitely say my cell phone is, has become kind of a great tool that's been helping in that regard. One thing for me that I would like to interject here is um, spending time listening to music, music appreciation. And yeah. Jen and I have, um, for the last year, ever since Nothing Holding Me Down, have been doing that. We've been going out and buying vinyl again and sitting down and just pulling out a stack of albums and just putting down the needle and listening to what someone else wrote. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that other artists do that when they come up uh, empty-handed. You know, If they're trying to come up with a, a lyric or they can't quite get the chorus of this one particular song and put on someone else's music. What did they do, you know? It really, really helps, and it's pulled us out of some very dark holes yeah, and enabled absolutely. us to finish a song where we at least went, okay, there's a finished song now. So music appreciation of others, I think, is always a great inspiration. Definitely. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. Now, you know, uh, as songwriters, one of the biggest things that uh, can trip up a young writer is when to put that <laughs> pen down. Um <laughs> You know, yeah. Because, now. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can you can massage and 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 write the song to death, you know, and yeah, no. just suck the life out of it by not knowing when to stop. And every writer has their way of quantifying that moment where the song is ready to move to that next phase of its life and into production. And of course, it always evolves. You know, you it evolves in the studio. It evolves even after it's been recorded. When you take it out on the road, it continues to mm-hmm. evolve. But you need yeah. that moment, that that transitional time. What was? What is the, your quantifier? What do you use to determine that moment when the song is ready to move on? Um, well, actually, Richard gave me some good advice when I was songwriting and he is definitely not the only one to say this, but, but if, uh, if the song can be played with one person on an acoustic guitar and having some sort of baseline to go along with it, if you can entertain yourself or someone else with just that instrument, your voice and your song, then you definitely have something for sure. That's kind of what we use as a, as a basis where um, where we feel the song is ready for production. Because if we look at each other and we're like, oh, yeah, that's where that great uh, keyboard part is going to be at to really kind of jazz it up, you know. <laughs> like, if we find ourselves saying that, we and the have... the song can't live no, without that. Yeah, and if the song can't live with all of the production that's going to come along with it, then we don't really... We have a filler song, and we try... You know, you got to write the filler songs to get to the gems, but that wouldn't be something we would take to production. So for us, it has to be something that can live by itself with just one person playing a guitar and singing it. And it's worked yeah, so far. That works. All right. Uh, now, let's talk about production. Let's talk about going into the studio because 
that is the other half of that equation. You know, having a good song is one half, but going into the studio and creating its identity, its sound, its its vibe is is an art form in itself. Uh, when you get into that environment of the studio, what is your working process that helps you capture the sound you're looking for? Well, first off, I'm a kid in a candy store in the studio. That is, if if I could pick, if, if you know, someone came to me and said, "You you only get one thing you can do from here on out with music," I would I would choose the studio. Richard would be live for sure. <laughs> he's he's ridiculously talented as a live musician. Um, but in terms of when we're in the studio, for us, we found, and this actually started with COVID because we. We record at um, my home studio, and this has ended up really working out for us really well, where we'll start with Richard and I will basically record, um, you know, scratch tracks, which is basically just our two guitars and vocals, and um, we will play with a click track just to make sure we got everything, you know, decent in time, and then we'll use those scratch tracks. We'll bring in our drummer. He typically comes first. And ideally, it would be really great if we could record bass and drums at the same time, because as we know, uh, the rhythm section does a great job feeding off each other. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that doesn't doesn't always work, though. Um, but uh, the last two albums, it starts with our drummer. We send everybody the scratch tracks. Our drummer comes in first and lays down the groove, which he does a wonderful job in that. And then um, we'll send his tracks along with the scratch tracks to our bass player. He'll uh, take a listen. We give him some time to think about what he wants to throw down, and then we bring him in to record. And then after that is done, Richard and I go to town on (laughs) our rhythm guitar parts, and then we bring in the keys, add that. And um, when, when we do this, I should mention, too, that, like, Richard and I are obsessed with filling up the frequency spectrum. So, um especially with two guitars, some great advice I had from a guitar teacher of mine was, um, you know, if you have two guitar players in the band and you're both playing the same thing, pretty soon everyone else in the band is going to wonder why they're paying you both. (laughs) (laughs) So so we kind of take that approach when we're recording, like Richard and I try to make sure as two guitars that we're never on top of each other, you know, maybe I'm playing a triad extension to his full chords or he's playing the bottom end of a triad and I'm playing the top end. Um, but for us, it's really um, taking up as much of that frequency spectrum as we can and then um, adding all the ear candy, as I like to call it. <laughs> Another thing that Jennifer introduced me to that I had never done in my own recording career in the 70s, but it, it's the formula for the energy energy, yeah. energy passage. You know, like it starts out, okay, it starts, if it's going to start out really big, at some point it's going to have to drop down, mm-hmm. and then there, you're going to have to go for a while, and then there's going to have to be a peak again at some point. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating to... Apply that formula to a song when you would listen to the song and go, okay, what is it that this song does not have that we need to pull? And it might have been, oh, well, it's obvious there needs to be a more exciting guitar part of something. Mm-hmm. So we would go in and recalculate a little bit, you know, or add another guitar part that maybe matched the bass part. And all of a sudden, boom, it just yeah. came to life. And those are the things in production, from my perspective, that I think are absolutely essential. That the, the listener doesn't always understand what what the producer did or what the instrumentation that was added, how it makes that particular sound. But you know, and then maybe it's just in that one chorus and never heard again. Mm-hmm. You know, because it creates an interest for your ear, and then you want to hear it again, and it's not there. <laughs> so then you want to listen to the song again. See. Yes, yeah. formulas for everything. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, that's that's definitely a good formula to work with. Now, um, you know, uh, one of the things that I found interesting, because uh, you said you have a home studio, um, I am a, a techno geek. Um, awesome. I have a bad case of gas. That's gear acquisition syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. You know, I you know, I'm sitting in my studio and you know, I got just tons of gear here. I've got 
you know, eight channels of API and, and you know, preamps and, and you know, six mm-hmm. channels of Neve 1073s. And, you know, I'm just, you know, I just, every time I see a new piece of gear, I'm like, ooh, ooh, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I'm always curious about the DAWs that different musicians mm. choose. Because when you choose a DAW, you're choosing kind of an investment in the company that creates it. And you're kind of... Yeah. Because, you know, everyone's got a, a learning curve to it. So once you learn it, you're kind of, you're locked in to that particular yeah. jaw. Uh, what are you using in your studio? I love Logic. I am that person. I know there's the big Logic Pro Tools debate, and I've, I've used both, and Pro Tools is great. Uh, the reason no, I love Logic... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, the reason I love Logic so much is honestly the usability of it and the fact that um, you don't have to pay an absorbent amount, mm-hmm. so the cost of energy was real low, and then the fact that essentially it comes with free upgrades is um, a ridiculously nice feature in terms of you know getting rid of the bugs and the fixes and all that fun stuff. But it, it hasn't let me down yet. I use it for uh, for when we record. I use it for mixing. I use it for mastering. And uh, the nice thing is, is any of the features within Logic, if there's something I want, like specifically, it almost feels like in mastering where this comes up the, uh, the most. Um, I can go get a plugin. And I can get an aftermarket plug-in like you do, uh, you know, the outboard gear. You know, even that's an option. And it just hasn't let me down yet to the point I'm hooked. So Yeah, and I agree with you. Logic is a great software program and a great DAW. And, you know, I use Studio One from Personas, you know, because, you know, I do a lot of mixing and mastering as well. And they have this mastering page to just floors me uh, how, how intuitive it is to, you know, to master something. Um, you know, and, and get it right in the, you know, the luff specs that you need, you know, for streaming or for, you know, YouTube or whatever the case may be. Uh, so, you know, I love that program, you know, to me, pro tools, I mean, the only reason anyone's using pro tools today is because they're too lazy to learn something else. Uh, <laughs> seriously, I mean, you know, everyone I've ever talked to that use pro tools, complains about it you know whether it's the know, or, or the or that it doesn't you know it crashes or you know it, every one of them complains but nobody wants to do anything about it you know they just keep going yeah. you know i agree with yep totally now tell me tell me about the lineup on this as far as the album yeah yeah who's who's on the album with you um our album is got obviously on uh, lead vocals and guitar. Richard is on backing vocals and guitar. And um, we've got Barb Jiskra on keys. She's a new addition. We would have loved to add her on Nothing Holding Me Down, but that was kind of at the height of COVID. And then uh, we've got Jim Anderson on drums and Chris Addison on bass. Who also played on the Nothing Holding Me Down. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, of course, once you get it recorded, you got to get it out. And you got to get it to press. You got to get it to radio. And you're working with Betsy Brown from Blind Raccoon uh, out of Memphis. And you know, of course, a good PR agent is is a really intricate part of uh, any musician's team. Uh, tell me a little bit about that relationship you have with Betsy. Betsy's been absolutely awesome. Um, I reached out to her when we were um, in the recording phase for this album. Uh, looking for a PR person because you hit it right on the head. It is, I mean, it is a full-time job. The, the people who try to multitask and do their own PR, you know, good for you, but it's not for me. <laughs> it's just too many irons in the fire. And um, Betsy's been absolutely awesome. I mean, her reputation preceded her. That's how I, I found out about her through um, some of my musician friends that have used her for their releases. And so far, she's done an absolutely fabulous job, and I'm sure she's going to continue to do so. Okay. Now, uh, let's talk about the music industry. I mean, the elephant in the room here is the fact that the consumer has now embraced streaming as a way to consume music. And, Rich, mm-hmm. you know, you and I are of roughly of the same era. You know, we we bought our music originally on vinyl, then we re-bought it on 8-tracks, mm-hmm. then we bought it on cassette. Yeah. 
then we bought it in CDs, then we decided to buy the downloads, and you know, we've been investing and, and having a tactile experience with music pretty much all of our lives. But there is a whole um, group of generations, is what I is the only way I can describe it, that really doesn't have that frame of reference. You know, to them, music is now um, not a product. It's now a service. Um, and that mindset really has changed the dynamic of the music industry. Um, how has this shift by the consumer affected you guys as artists? That's that's interesting. Well, um, the good news is vinyl outsold all... Um all mediums last year. Now you're right. That obviously doesn't include streaming, but the fact that vinyl is on a major resurgence tells me two things. One, people are now, um, I shouldn't say all people, but there are obviously a lot of people that are looking at music like you guys did back in the day, which is, you know, I'm going to sit, I'm going to spin this album from, from probably cover to cover, at least one side of it. And, you know, it's an experience versus just, you know, uh, nowadays where you're streaming and, and going for a run. But I also look at all of it. I feel like all of it has a purpose as a musician that wants to reach their audience. Like if the true intention of music is reaching people with your creation, we do need streaming. And the reason I say that is from our fan base, we have a lot of fans who are absolutely awesome people. They're ridiculously supportive but they live in locations where the dollar per dollar uh, exchange wouldn't would absolutely not make sense. You know, there's no way that they're going to be able to consume our product in like a CD form or even downloading our album. But they stream the crap out of our music mm -hmm. because that is that is the means they have to enjoy it. So that doesn't bother me at all. I feel like it absolutely has its purpose. And I feel I feel also too as artists, you know, if you're seeing that you want to be selling CDs to your fans, fans at least in our genre and blues and blues rock, they still are buying those things. If they're not buying yours, it's because you're not giving them a good offer. And what I mean by that is 20% discount. That that's boring. You know, you got to find a way, do a limited edition run. Do, hey guys, I'm signing a hundred autographs, um, autograph CDs. They're a limited run. Now all of a sudden it becomes something that's tangible that your fan might actually enjoy versus just a 20% off, you know, coupon for your CD. So I don't know. I'm, I kind of see all sides of it. Well, you know, I, I mean, I know that, you know, there's been a lot of, um, press about how vinyl is resurging and it's outselling cds but i don't think it's so much you know we're not reaching the levels that we used oh, to know you know in, sure. in sense. Sure. you know the, oh. the reason it's outselling cds is because nobody's buying cds i mean you know you, if you went to best buy and asked them where the cd player section is the guy at the front <laughs> desk would look at you like you had two heads you know that is funny you know, yeah, if, what does that stand? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> what, C, CD yeah. player? What? You know, and, and if you went to the car dealer and said, you know, I'd like my, my 2023 car to have a CD player, they, they could no look way. at you like, well, we don't make them anymore. You have to get it aftermarket. Right. You know, and yep. even then you're going to have a hard time. So once that hardware is gone, the software is not far behind. You know, even right. though, right. you know, in, in, the, in the blues industry, um, that you know, we still have you know old people that are buying CDs because they still have CD players and they still have them in their cars. Um, yeah. But it's they're going to eventually die off, and and we're going to have to now look at this market and say, what do we do now? Um, sure. And if you look at streaming, you know, as far as a revenue stream, um, that the way it is structured now is not sustainable as a business model. Uh, if no. you look at streaming, it is really, you know, and especially at the independent artist level, because at the major artist level, they worked out deals with, with these streaming court companies. They bought yep. stock in these streaming companies. So they have an economic vested interest and they're getting a bigger piece of that pie. But for the independent artists, the way it is structured, um, you really have 
zero chance of recouping your investment in recorded music through streaming. You know what wow. I mean? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's yeah. you know it's not sustainable for an independent artist and you know let's face it the independent music community is what really makes up the bulk of what the content is on these sites you know they may sure. you know uh, contain the bulk of the amount of streams because you know of course Taylor Swift and you know T Pain and all these other artists are are kind of taking, you know, they take that bulk of streams, but they are the bulk of content. So mm-hmm. we need to have something that's going to change the dynamics of this. We need streaming to evolve into something that is more equitable to the independent artist. Um, what do you think we need to do? What do you think needs to happen to get to that point? where we start getting more more equitable uh, pay scale for the indie, indie artist? Honestly, I don't know that we will. <laughs> I, I hate to be a pessimist. Um, that being said, for, in, for any, any, any independent artist out there, you got to find your avenue for your, for your streams of income. I mean, I've, I'm seeing some indies that are doing some ridiculously creative things, not only with live shows, but also online shows, um, bringing forth more of themselves, which is something a major artist doesn't really have the ability to do, not because they necessarily don't want to, um, but because they, you know, maybe the label won't even allow them. And so the Indies, we kind of actually have a little bit of an advantage in terms of the creativity. You know, we're, we're like the jet skis and they're on the yacht where we're a little bit easy to maneuver. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, you hit it right on the head. We're like the streaming industry as indies. We kind of need it, but at the same time, we know it's not ever really probably going to be a main revenue stream for us, but still there's a lot to be said in terms of just even the data and the Intel that um, streaming can give us as independent artists. I mean, there's things that we can gather from that on the back end, but I mean, like from an independent artist, I see us becoming more of I mean, we already are entertainers, but I see it even becoming more so where, um, you know, we have the ability to have more of a, a network and a community with our tribe of people um, and have more relationship building than some of the major artists do. So we have that to our advantage. It's just finding ways to market yourself in a profitable manner is the challenging part. Well, you know, and I'm sure Richard understands this, too, because he's been in the industry since the 70s. But, you know, traditionally, you know, when record companies kind of ran things,
Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, 
makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Shout now, honey. Gonna make. 